We have a wonderful text from Amos, chapter 2, which was read very nicely, very nicely today. By the way, welcome back from Thanksgiving, everybody. It's good, it's good to be back home again. This is somewhat of an unbelievable passage. Um, some of the things that Amos is accusing the people of are, are really striking. I mean, who, who even heard of this? You made the Nazarites drink wine. You commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. I mean, these are the hardcore servants of God who have come to kind of correct history, make a course correction, set things moving more towards kingdom come, more towards God's reign, and the people are, are, are shutting them up. I mean, one of the things that the Nazarites vow to do, not only do they not cut their hair, but they don't drink alcohol. So having them drink alcohol is really lowering them to the level of everybody else. One of the things that the common people are doing, if you go over to verse 8, they're in the house of God, they're in the holy place, they're in the temple, and they're drinking wine. And it's not just any wine, it's the wine that they've confiscated from the poor and the downtrodden and the lowly in society. I mean, who does that? It's, uh, it's crazy. You have to search world literature very hard to find a figure who, who, embodies, who embodies this. I think I've found one. I'll tell you who it is in just a minute. But um, first, one of the things that gives me pause in this you made the Nazarites drink wine, verse 12. You made the prophets not prophesy. Where are the seminary professors? <laughs> why, not, why not? You, you shut up the seminary professors from, from giving their lectures. Um, why not? And what about the, the ministers and the priests? Why, didn't, why doesn't it say you shut up the priests and stop them from performing rituals? I mean, I think all of this should give us all a little bit of pause who are professionals in this great task that God has put before us. Why, why aren't we being shut up? <laughs> are we not living up to the standards of the prophets and the Nazarites? I mean, a hint again is, is given in verse 8. People are drinking the wine of those who have been fined in the holy places. And not only that, they're stretching out by the altars on the collateral garments that they took from people who are now shivering out in the cold and have no blanket to put over them. I mean, if this is happening at the altars, where are we? Where, where are the ministers to, to stop them? So this seems really hard to, really hard to get a, a handle on. Where, where did we find this? Well, probably the greatest novel in world literature, uh, written, in, written in Russian from 1880. Uh, some of you in my class have, have read the story. Dostoevsky, he finds such a figure who, who does, <laughs> does this. It's the story of the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, you may be familiar with the story. If you're not, definitely go, go read it. It's probably the besides the Bible, the most important story you'll read in seminary. So, you, you, you go back to the, what does no one expect? 
the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> you never thought uh, you'd hear a sermon on the Spanish Inquisition, but that's the setting for the Grand Inquisitor. Christ has appeared, not at the Parousia, not in glory, but just humbly made an appearance in Seville in the 16th century, the day after many heretics have been burned at the stake, raises some dead people, gives sight to some blind people, and then the cardinal walks by, the, the grand inquisitor, and he immediately has Christ arrested. The crowd does nothing, hauls him away, and gives Christ in the dungeon this long, elaborate speech in which Christ says, says nothing. And it's all about how he, the, the chief priest in Spain, has corrected Christ's work. And how has he corrected it? He's taken the advice of the great dread spirit of the wilderness temptations. He's taken the advice of Christ's opponent, in the 40 days wilderness temptations and corrects, corrects Christ's work. And one of the things he does is he says Christ's standards are much too high, much too high. We don't live in the heavenly uh, splendor. We're not gods. We, we live in Cincinnati. We're, norm we're normal people. <laughs> My apologies to Iva. <laughs> Sorry, Iva. Um, but the Grand Inquisitor knows that we live in, in Cincinnati. We're normal. We can't live up to, the, to, to Christ. So we forgive sins. That's one of the things that the, uh, the Grand Inquisitor's correction of Christ's program does. And you can see how in Amos it's pretty easy to forgive these sins. They're not major atrocities. They're just following the law, taking debtors to court, taking collateral when you're not sure of repayment, enjoying a good cup of wine at the service. It's all perfectly polite, perfectly okay, perfectly normal. So why is Amos so upset? Well, I think one of the great things about Amos and one of the great things about Dostoevsky's story is he's unwilling to let religion simply be about psychology, simply be about politics, simply be about therapy. It's really the great thing about Amos and the great thing about Dostoevsky is that it's all about a philosophy of history. It's all about a metaphysics of history. So the context of Amos is not just about Israel, but it's about Moab, it's about Ammon, it's about Edom. God is doing things with all the countries, with all the world, and God is moving this not towards just a situation where, as the Grand Inquisitor puts it, we can all just live a suitably acceptable life. That's just not, it's not good enough. That's not living into the Imago Dei. It's not living up to the standards that the prophets and the Nazarites are, are trying to live into. It's demanding costly grace. It's demanding human transformation. It's demanding becoming the image of God. So there's these two great forces that are 
stuck in history, and we're living in the midst of these two tensions. And I think this is a brilliant insight. There's Christ's ideal of love and this impossible standard of becoming like Christ, loving even the enemy, caring for each other in mutuality. And there's the Grand Inquisitor, the priest. Everyone's welcome. It's okay to prevaricate. It's okay to live in the muddledness of life. That's all we can expect. The tempter was correct. If we can just grab hold of miracle and authority and bread, if we can feed the hungry, people will be glad to embrace their slave status. We don't need that radical freedom of the gospel. We don't need that radical freedom to become true lovers of God and those who God really loves. So those are the tensions, and there's no way out of it. We're stuck right in the middle because both sides are pretty, like, pretty good arguments. Christ is unrealistic. The uh, uh, Grand Inquisitor is very convincing. He fits right in with the person on the street, what you hear on the news, what almost everybody assumes is true. So what, where are we with Amos and what's the message of Amos in all of this? I love the image in verse 13. The wagon weighted down with sheaves. And there's an ambiguity in the Hebrew. It could equally say that God is weighted down like a wagon pulled with sheaves. I think we're all weighted down, and that's the problem. History gets stuck in the mud. We've got these two great tensions, the Grand Inquisitor, Jesus, and we're stuck in the mud in, the, in, in between those two tensions. What resolves it? It's in the last verse. Even the bravest will flee naked in that day. So that day is the day of the Lord, the eschatological day when the great tensions of history that, that cannot be resolved in life get resolved. There, there, there actually is a movement beyond the polar oppositions and tensions of history to a resolution, and that resolution is the reign of God. The alternative is to be stuck in the mud, weighed down by the sheaves. So please, in your ministries, <laughs> don't go out and ignore the day of the Lord. Please do not in your ministries go out and refuse to preach the hard words of Amos, because history is stuck in the mud, and we need the day of the Lord. Why, why do we need it? Why can't we simply preach a God of pure love and ultimate welcoming and complete invitation and compromise and uh, I'm okay, you're okay? Well, the end of the Grand Inquisitor, I think, gives, gives the answer. The Grand Inquisitor decides not to burn Jesus at the stake. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> came, this, came this close. But he does say, get out. Get out and never, never, never come back. We got this, Jesus. We got this. We're good. Get out and don't say a word. So, in my reading, and I've read several commentaries on this, that's clearly the refusal to look forward to the second coming. It's the refusal 
to want the parousia. It's the refusal to live in the tension of wanting Jesus back. I think we're all guilty of that. Jesus, get out and don't come. Do not come. So Jesus does give an answer finally, and I'll stop with this. He gets up, and his only answer is to kiss the Grand Inquisitor. And the kiss burns on the flesh of the Grand Inquisitor and deeply affects him. But you know what? He goes right on and continues his program of correcting the message of Jesus. Doesn't stop. And love, love is great and it's wonderful and we need to live that way, like, just like Jesus. But a, a, a pure message of love is not gonna resolve the dialectic of history. You're not gonna get to the kingdom that way. You need the day of the Lord. It's absolutely philosophically, metaphysically, existentially, at the heart of the gospel. So please don't lose it. Amen.